CSN International presents to every man an answer, the live apologetics program that equips you to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. If you have a Bible question or a question on the Christian faith, you can call us at 1-888-827-5276. Again, that's 1-888-ASK-CSN. Let's get things started. Here's today's host, Mike Kessler. Hi, and welcome to Monday's edition of To Every Man and Answer. As we start off this brand new week, we're glad you're listening in. Looking forward to being with you for about the next hour as we take this time aside every weekday afternoon to answer questions about the Bible from the Bible, look at current events through a biblical perspective, um, uh, hear, you know, review what we hear in church. I mean, there's just so many things that... Uh, right now that are out there that pertain to our, our daily relationship with God that we need to really get a good biblical uh, understanding of what, what God's Word says. And so if you've got a question you'd like to ask us, that number to call again, 8888-ASK-CSN is the number to call. You can be part of the program today. It's live radio. Again, 8888-ASK-CSN. And uh, I just want to just encourage you to call we got a couple lines open, so if you call right now, you're sure to get on. Joining me today, special guest, Scott Parker from uh, Festus, Missouri, right outside St. Louis. Hi and welcome. Hello, Mike. It is great to be with you today, and uh, I love Mondays. I love starting um, my week off by joining you here on CSN, answering questions. So uh, it's a blessing to be with you today. Look forward to answering some questions with you. So many things. Again, mm-hmm. we we uh, just need to be about our Father's business in these days that we live. Well, we might as well just go ahead and go to the phones. Um, we have we have line two. Uh, Christopher, Springfield, Oregon, I welcome. <laughs> Hi, thank you for taking my call. How can we help? I had, well, I, um, I'm a little bit confused about a certain scripture. I'm in the book of Isaiah, and chapter 65 and I'm looking at verse 20 where it says, and I read out of the old, the, uh, the King James, there shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. And I'm having trouble wrapping, wrapping my mind around that because Further on in the same chapter, it's, it's talking about uh, <clears throat> the the wolf and the lamb lying down together. So, I I can only in my in my understanding, which is I admit is limited. I uh, think they're talking about the uh, the millennial age of when Christ comes down and and reigns for a thousand years. So, you're right. That's exactly what it is, and. Uh... You know, the Bible says he's going to make the earth new uh, after the tribulation period. Um, and uh, so men will live to be nearly a thousand years old again, just like it was before the flood. And uh, the Bible says that when a child, when somebody dies at a hundred years old, they're going to consider him a child. Um, and uh, again, uh, a person that's, that's a, a God rejecter, uh, you've lived long enough to know the goodness of God, and that's why I believe the rest of that's in there. But uh, if you're living to be nearly a thousand years old again, uh, you would be considered a child dying at a hundred. And so that, I believe, is what it's talking about. 
Scott, your thoughts? Yeah, Mike, that's exactly what I was talking about. I totally agree with you. It's going to be amazing how uh, when Jesus returns to the earth uh, after the Battle of Armageddon and after all of that is over and he takes, uh, let me say what's the right word, takes possession of the earth and then sets up his kingdom on the earth. Um, it's interesting because during those 1,000 years, though the curse of death is not removed, a lot of the curse from the earth is removed, and we see that a lot of the that the earth will go back uh, to a lot of the condition it was before the flood, and especially we know that the Garden of Eden, the way it was in the Garden of Eden, will be totally restored upon the earth uh, when the new heaven and new earth uh, is ushered in. Uh, then the curse of death will be completely gone. Uh, but during that 1,000-year period, when you go back to the Old Testament, during the millennial reign, you see uh, that a lot of the uh, curse of the earth is is gone. And a lot of things uh, go back to the way they were uh, before sin entered the world. And uh, so it's interesting when you look at the what that's talking about there is the longevity uh, of life uh, on the earth. Uh, for those who are born during the millennial reign. And it's just simply saying that, you know, if you die at a hundred years old during the millennium, uh, it's like a, it's like being a baby. It's like dying. It's like dying before your, your days are, are up, you know, dying too young. Basically it's what it's saying there. It's just giving, it's a, it's just a, a wonderful poetic way of just telling us, um, what life is going to be like, and especially the longevity of life is going to be like during the millennial reign for those, uh, who, are born into that time. Mike? Hope that helps. It does. It, 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 it really does bring some light to that for me, and I, I really appreciate your show. I, I listen to it all the time, and I, 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 just, I, I, just, I just bless your show, and I thank you for bringing light to me on this particular passage. Well, Christopher, I'm glad you called in. Keep reading your Bible, and if you've got any more questions, be sure to call us. We always love uh, not only our first-time callers, but those who repeat call as well. It's uh, a good time for all of us to go together, and that's a good time. Stay online, send you out the movie Jesus. If you don't have it, based on the book of Luke, great for evangelism, share it with your friends. Let's go to Earl, Oregon. Hi, and welcome. Hi there. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. How may we help? Well, Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. Who is this person that's walking from Basra out into the desert with nobody to help him and blood all over everything? Uh, who is it and where do you think he's going? Well, many people attribute this part uh, to the tribulation period. Your thoughts? Yeah, exactly. And Earl, it appears to be our Lord Jesus. Uh, it appears that uh, the person that's being described there is Jesus, because when he returns, um, he's going to defeat all the armies of the world that come against Israel and they come against him. And what we see when you read Revelation chapter, uh, for instance, when you read Revelation chapter 12, it speaks of Israel. And Jesus also spoke about this as well in the sense of having a place for them to be able to flee from the dragon, which is Satan, and from the Antichrist, uh, who's going to try to totally destroy them. And the scripture gives us the indication in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation 
that they are going to go down to this area of Basra. They're going to go down to this area that today we call it Petra uh, there in Jordan, where God's going to prepare a place for them, uh, for the remnant of Israel, uh, the remnant of the Jews, to be safe during that time of the second half of the tribulation, which is uh, called the Great Tribulation, uh, while all this is going on. And so what you see is there in Isaiah 63, Jesus returns to the earth, of course, we know, as I said a moment ago, that he's going to uh, fight in the, what we call the Battle of Armageddon, where he's going to destroy his enemies, all those nations that will come against Israel, come against Jerusalem, come against him. Uh, he will he will uh, defeat them. And part of this campaign is that it appears from Isaiah 63, he goes down to Petra, uh, where a remnant of the Jews are hiding and where they're at to rescue them. What's interesting is if you look at the language that's used here, uh, in Isaiah 63, it talks about how he comes from Edom with uh, dyed garments from Basra. Again, that's the area of Petra in Jordan. And then it talks about, in verse 2, his garments are like one who treads a wine press. And then he says, this is, this is basically the Messiah. This is the Lord Jesus saying, I have trodden the wine press alone. And from the peoples, uh, no one was with me, for I've trodden them in my anger, trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have and, and I have stained all my robes. So what's interesting? That's a picture of Jesus returning, and part of his judgments up, judgments upon the nations is when he comes and he defeats these nations that come against Israel. And so what we see then is literally he he judges these people destroys these people um and the imagery here is like their blood is upon his garments well what's interesting is when you go to the book of revelation in chapter 19 talking about jesus second coming in verse 15 it talks about this when it says now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Now we know there that's talking about eventually the millennium, but he says this, he himself, this is Jesus. And in Isaiah 63, he, he says, I alone tread the wine press. Revelation 19, 15, he says, he himself treads the wine press of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. So that's what's happening there. This is speaking of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mike? Hope that helps. Well, I got another question. Okay. Okay, well, he, when, he's, when he's in the desert of Arabia, he's by himself. But when he comes in Revelation 19, he has the bride with him, and he has blood on his garments. So his, his first touch back to earth must be in the desert rather than on the Mount of Olives, because that's just basically what it's really talking about. Am I right or wrong? Scott, your thoughts? No, no, you're exactly right. You're, you're right in the sense that the Bible's very clear that when Jesus returns, he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. Uh, we, we see that in Zechariah mentions that uh, the uh, angels uh, whenever Jesus ascended into heaven, uh, they were there on the Mount of Olives. That's where he left. The angel said that he's going to come back in the same way that he left. Uh, many scriptures tell us that, that he's going to come back to the earth. He's going to come with his saints, which is the church, right? Uh, and he's going to touch down, so to speak, right there on the Mount of Olives. 
Uh, but what this is describing here, this is describing the campaign that he, he himself is going to carry on. Here's what's interesting. If you do read Revelation chapter 19, uh, where it speaks about Jesus doing this very thing, um, you notice that the armies that are with him, the armies in heaven are clothed with, with, uh, fine linen, white and clean. They followed him on white horses. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because it says that he himself exacts this judgment. He himself is, is the one who's going to destroy these nations and judge them. Uh, Jesus comes as it tells us, and he's going to strike them with the sword of his mouth, that sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. He's going to strike them. And so he's doing all the fighting. Um, and so that's what it's describing there. It's describing the work that Jesus alone is going to do. And so that's, that's what we're looking at in Isaiah 63, uh, is him, uh, going and doing this. Uh, and, and yes, the church is going to return with him. But again, what you have to understand too is when you're looking at prophecy, you know, the, the, the prophet is just giving to us. He's not really explaining to us uh, exact details of what's going to happen. But what he's doing is he's giving to us what the Lord's giving to him as he is seeing it or how, how, the, how the Lord is imparting it to him. So I wouldn't get caught up on the details of, well, it says he comes, he's by himself in the desert. and the, No, it, it, when you put all the scriptures together, which is what you have to do, uh, it's very clear that Isaiah 63 is speaking of Jesus in his second coming. Mike? Yes, and and again, we will return with him, but we will not be doing the fighting. This is something, nope. again, as you said, Scott, Jesus does himself. And so when it says, and no one was with me, it means he meets this coalition army, the Battle of Armageddon, alone, and there he wages war against the ungodly on this earth. Now, we get to observe it. We're his bride. I think maybe the Lord might be showing off a little bit for his bride here. Perhaps, I don't know. But when they're when they're destroyed, then he will go to the Mount of Olives, and um, that's where we'll find the new millennial reign of Christ. I hope that helps. Yeah, okay. Just a point of interest. Yes, and I agree with what you're saying. A point of interest, it is approximately 200 miles from Basra to Jerusalem. 200 miles. And the the blood on the horses, they're up, blood's up to their range. Just, I'm just making a point of that. Revelation 14:20. Thanks, guys. Real quick, uh, just to just to explain that too, Earl. Um, there, in the original language, where it says the the blood is is as high as the horse's bridle, I don't believe it's a lake of blood like maybe some people do. I believe that because of the bodies that are laying on the battlefield, and whether it be the horses trotting on them, which I believe is going to be part of it, whether it's the tanks running over the dead bodies and them exploding, but what it indicates is the blood is as high as the horse's bridle. The splattering can be as high as the horse's bridle. So I think for some people to say, oh, there's this giant, you know, lake of blood, is it possible? I, I guess. But most uh, Bible scholars attribute that more to the 
the it, it's going to be such a bloodbath of carnage, if you will, that as these bodies are just chopped up and ran over and, and the hoofs smashed on, the splattering of blood is that high. That is almost unbelievable that there would be that much blood to splatter that high. So when you when you realize this is going to be the world's finest, uh, the final bloodiest battle ever fought. So Earl, hope that helps. Stay in line if you like. Send you out the movie Jesus, okay? Okay, thank you. God bless you. Thanks so much for the call. Let's go to Joe, California. Hi, welcome. Hey, I have a couple questions here. Uh, my first one is the nuclear war going to be before or after the return of Jesus? And the second question is, is the microchip that is being implanted in everybody's hand and stuff right now, is that going to be the mark of the beast? Okay. First of all, don't know on the on that. Uh, the Bible says a mark, name, or number on the hand or on the forehead. Uh, you will not be able to buy or sell. That is implemented about halfway through the tribulation period. Now, it's in direct rebellion, you might say, to... God putting his mark on the 144,000 Jews in Revelation chapter 7. Remember, Satan is always the counterfeiter. And that's what he seems to do the best, is counterfeit. Uh, and so we, we find we find that. Now, Scott, your thoughts on the others. Yeah, exactly. You know, as far as that battle between, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, of Ezekiel 38-39, as Mike said, we're, we're not sure about that, you know, because um, it, it isn't... It isn't specific. Um, I would say this. It, it could happen before or after. It makes more sense that it would happen after the rapture. Um, if it happens after the rapture, there has to be some kind of a time gap between the rapture and the tribulation, the beginning of the tribulation, because what begins the tribulation is not the rapture. What begins the tribulation is the signing of the covenant between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel, which is seen in the first seal judgment in Revelation 6, that's what starts the tribulation. It makes more sense to think that um, that after the rapture, the invasion happens, because then um, after the rapture happens, there's going to be chaos on the earth. And then with that, uh, with that battle, even though the Lord's going to defend Israel— uh, the Antichrist is, you know, <laughs> lack of better words, going to try to take credit for it. He's going to try to step up and, you know, and convince Israel uh, that they need his protection. He's there for them and, and, and to make a covenant and, uh, and all, uh, because they will show themselves, well, the Lord will show them as a very powerful nation then having warded off, you know, Russia and Iran and all those different nations. Um, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be in- incredible. But we do know they're going to burn the weapons for seven years. And so that's why I say if it happens after the rapture, there has to be some sort of a time gap. Now, good Bible scholars uh, differ on this as far as uh, prophecy teachers. Some say that if there is a time gap, it might only be days. Some say weeks, months, and even some even say it may be a few years. Uh, but we do know it has to happen before the end, the end of the seven years of the burning of the weapons, because the tribulation is only seven years, and I can't see any reason, and it makes no sense to have the burning of those weapons going into the millennial reign. That that makes no sense at all, because Jesus is going to be bring peace to the earth, and all that'll be over. And I'm restoring sure. the earth back, and to and, be burning yes. nasty weapons, because I think the climate's yeah. going to also be a very much a change from what it was 
And I think that's going to be really a good thing. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, so I hope go that, ahead, Mike. No, I hope that answers it for you. Okay, we might have lost you, Joe. Are you there? Yeah, I think we've lost Joe. So it's hard to hear. <laughs> hard to hear. Um, uh, Joe, if you can call back, please call back. We'll answer the rest of your question. I don't want to because we want to get to all of them there, uh, and so just just call back and then we'll we'll uh, answer that. In the meanwhile, we'll go to Joel in Bellingham, Washington. Hi, welcome. Hey, Mike and Scott. Uh, a couple quick questions on the millennium, which seems to be coming up today. Uh, first one is um, children born during the millennium obviously will be born to uh, non-believers who somehow make it through the tribulation. And my or, second... or believers. They, 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 mm-hmm. I believe there'll be believers that will go into the millennial reign of Christ. Oh, um, and that are not raptured? And, and No, and... the rapture happens, the rapture happens three, uh, seven plus years before yep. that time. So the ones that will not go into the into the millennial reign of Christ is, is of course, those that have taken the mark of the beast. So that's, the Bible's clear on that. But I believe there will be believers that make it into the millennial reign of Christ, and they will have children, and as well as as those that did not take the mark of the beast that uh, aren't born again. So I, I think you're going to see that as well. Go on, Joel. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, it's fine. But it's my understanding that if we are believers, that uh, upon rapture, we'll be receiving glorified bodies. And if we're going to have glorified bodies, we're going to be like the angels. So we will not be bearing children. Well, that's right. But but remember, there is going to be real human beings on this earth through the tribulation period that make it through it. I don't think there's going to be a lot, but there's going to be those that make it through it. And they will go then into the thousand-year reign of Christ where Jesus rules from Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, again, the rapture comes before. That's when we get our glorified bodies. Uh, and those who died as martyrs during the tribulation period, that says that in Revelation chapter 6. And so those that make it through the tribulation period, they will go into the millennial reign. So go finish your question there. Sorry about that. Okay, no, no problem. That was a good answer. Thanks. My other question I think was a little more important, uh, at least for me, is I don't really understand why, if Jesus is, a, is our final atone, atonement, uh, why when we go into the millennium that uh, he is still wanting animal sacrifices. As a memorial, not to take away people's sin, but to show people how much only blood can cover their sins. I don't believe in any way it forgives anybody's sins. I believe it's completely a memorial. We have the tomb and the unknown soldier. Why? The the battle those soldiers fought in is long over. Why do we have that memorial there? Well, it's to remind us of the sacrifice that was made so that we can be free. I believe the animal sacrifices are a reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus made the supreme sacrifice, where the blood of bulls and goats could never forgive us, Jesus' blood could, and I believe this is why this is instituted as a reminder. Your thoughts? Mike, I agree with you 100%. And also, Joel, think of it this way. What communion is to you and I, the animal sacrifices will be to those living during the millennial reign. 
It's the same thing. Just as Mike said, it's a reminder. Uh, if you remember when Jesus uh, instituted what we call communion uh, at his last Passover meal with his disciples, uh, he told them to do this in remembrance of him. Uh, to remember what he, for them, was going to do and what he did do for them. And then Paul uh, instructs the Corinthians the same way uh, in telling the, the Corinthian church and us today that whenever we take communion, we take the bread and the cup, what we're doing is we're remembering the death of our Lord Jesus. So when you look at uh, what is going to be happening during the millennial reign, those sacrifices will not be efficacious for uh, sin and the removal of sin, because that's already been done by the blood of Jesus. Uh, he, his, the book of Hebrews makes it very clear. His one sacrifice, uh, gets rid of all sin for all people for all time. It, it, it's, it's powerful to do that because, uh, it was God himself <laughs> dying for our sins in human flesh. Um, but those animal sacrifices, as Mike said, will just serve to remind us what the king on the throne. Now you gotta remember when Jesus returns, He's going to be, uh, he's, he's glorified. He's going to, he's going to be awesome, but he's also going to have those nail prints in his hands and his feet and his side proving what he did for us. And so he's got, we're going to have that reminder, but then also we'll have those animal sacrifices for it to be, uh, just a real clear, uh, reminder and a very, uh, how should I say a very visual reminder, uh, for all those in the millennium, what he did for us. So praise the Lord. for Amen. That. <laughs> right? I, I, I hope that answers it for you, Joel. And I, I, are you there? I think we must have lost Joel. Joel, if that didn't answer for you, please call us back. We might be having phone uh, phone problems today. I'm not sure, but but I hope that answered it for you. Again, isn't it interesting that Jesus, uh, Scott said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Yes. It, it's funny that Jesus wanted to be remembered by this special atoning uh, um, uh, uh, blood and, and bread um, communion, this, this Passover meal that commemorated what happened way back in the land of Egypt when the death angel passed over the children of Israel. Now Jesus is saying, do this in remembrance of me. So I believe remembrance is important to God. And I believe, again, that's why the animal sacrifices are there in the temple in Jerusalem, Israel, as a remembrance. Hope that helps, and uh, God bless you. Thanks so much for the call. Uh, Joel, do we have you back? Line one. I didn't hang up. We had a big storm here, and I lost my other phone. Oh, my. Well, hope you're okay. Uh, um, I, I hope that answered it for you. Oh, oh, this is Scott. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Scott. No, I, it really did. And, uh, you know, I'm just kind of an animal lover, so I, I thought in a thousand, thousand years we'll just be living in harmony with all the animals. But... Yeah, well, uh, uh, Joel, again, stay in line. We'll send you out the movie, Jesus. Hope the storm doesn't get you. We're coming upon a break, everyone. We don't want you to go away. When we come back, we'll have more to every minute answer right after this. Hey, this is Brant along with Sherry here. And so you hear me doing these spots for MediShare, and Sherry actually helps me with them. I get people actually in person saying, okay, Brant, for real, do you recommend this? Like, yeah, uh, for real, I actually do. I'm not just saying stuff, so... Family, friends ask me about it. I'm like, yes, you should look into this. It's really a great option for a lot of people. That's what I tell people. My experience has been, MediShare has been 
fantastic for me. Yeah. It, it's so different from health insurance in a lot of great ways, honestly. It, yeah. And see, a lot of people who've switched tell me that it's the same reaction. They're very, very happy with it and it gives them peace of mind and saves them a lot of money. I would tell people, look into it. Yep. Uh, so really, for reals, uh, if you want to talk to them, they're great to talk to. I think you'll be impressed and happy you looked into it. So um, you do the phone number. I'm actually tired of doing all the phone numbers. Yeah. Okay. Call now. 855-91-BIBLE. That's 855-91-BIBLE. 855-91-BIBLE. Nice job. Thanks. More than ever, pastors need to feel people's love and support. Over the last few years, many pastors have seriously considered leaving their church. But 1 Thessalonians 5.12 instructs all churches and all Christians to show and share their deep appreciation for those who minister to them. There is no better time to do this than Pastor Appreciation Month in October. And there's no better way to do it than using the easy as one, two, three, bless your pastor materials that are available for free at blessyourpastor.org. That's blessyourpastor.org. Plus, the great news is that if your church uses the 123 Bless Your Pastor materials, the pastors at your church will be offered a $300 scholarship application to attend a Family Life Weekend to Remember Marriage Retreat. What a blessing this will be to your pastors and their spouses. For free materials, go to blessyourpastor.org. That's blessyourpastor.org. Back to part two of To Every Man Answer here on this Monday afternoon with Scott Parker from Festus, Missouri. I'm your host, Mike Kessler in Twin Falls, Idaho. We're going to go back to the phones. We have Brent on the line, Fort Worth, Texas. Hi, welcome. Looking for Brent. Brent's not there. Oh, okay. Sorry, Brent. We missed your call back. Let's go to Bob, Kenny, Alaska. Hi, and welcome. Hi, guys. Uh, love what you guys are doing. Um, God is good. God is good. Amen. Uh, we know Scripture tells us that in creation, God created everything in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. And we look through uh, history, and it's been close to six, you know, somewhere around 6,000 years since creation, and then the 1,000-year millennium is is coming up. Yep. I wonder if there... As scripture tells us that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So I wonder if there's any connection, symbolic or otherwise, uh, between those sixes and ones. Uh, well, we, we do know that uh, God created the heavens and the earth in uh, uh, six days. Uh, we find this not only, of course, in Genesis, but it's also repeated in the most holy of all the Jewish writing in the Torah uh, in Exodus 20 of the Ten Commandments. And there it says God um, uh, created the heavens and the earth in six days, and he rested on the seventh. The, the Bible uses the word yom, which is a 24-hour period of time. Now, nothing's hard for God. I believe he could have created the earth fully aged, just like when he changed the water to wine, he took something new, made it appear to be aged. I think that's interesting that that was the first miracle Jesus in person did on this earth. 
I think the first miracle that Jesus did when he created the heavens and the earth is he, he created the earth fully aged. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's good. Now, what is why is that important? Well, because God, seven is the number of completion in in uh, in God's word. And we find that everywhere. We have seven days in a week. On the eighth day, it starts a new week. You have seven notes in a scale. You start the next note, that starts a new scale. Uh, you find this all the way through uh, our, our, our humanists, if you will. Now, what we, when what's really interesting here to me is that it is true that man's futile efforts to govern himself are just about up. And uh, 6,000 years of proving everything the Bible says is true about man, that he's desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? The heart of man. Uh, When we find that we desperately need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior all the way through the Bible, we find the need for for a sacrifice. Jesus is that ultimate sacrifice for us. And then we enter into the thousand-year reign of Christ and the time in which uh, God rested. Well, I believe that, again, it will certainly provide rest for man in that we're not trying to govern ourselves, but God will be governing us from Jerusalem. And so I, I, I believe that. Now, I've had people say, well, maybe God created the heavens and the earth in, in, in 7,000 years because a day is as a thousand years. Another. The idea there in that statement is God lives outside of our time domain. Extremely important to understand. God lives in all times present. Well, where in the Bible does it say that? Well, it says it in Revelation chapter uh, 1. It says it in Revelation chapter 22. He says, I am Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. He didn't say, I was Alpha and Omega, or uh, I was the beginning, uh, and now I'm in the end. No, he speaks as if all times present. I don't know anything like that. Everything I know has a date tied to it, whether it's a, a gallon of milk or a, or your car you drive, you, you know, it's a 1995 you know, uh, S10, or it's a, it's a gallon of milk with, a, you know, an October 1st uh, uh, expiration date on it. Everything I know has got time tied to it. But Jesus stepped out of eternity into time, and walked with man that he created. This is one of the most incredible things that we find about God. So from God's perspective, God knows ultimately all things, but we don't. And so because of that, we are uh, live in this, uh, in this time continuum that we're all in, but God is not in that. He lives outside of it. And so really, time is irrelevant to God in that he doesn't age. Your thoughts? Yeah, you're exactly right, Mike. And uh, all of that was great. And and Bob, you know, um, it's a good observation you made because there are good, you know, uh, prophecy Bible teachers uh, who see something into this, you know, that they, they look at that and they see, uh, especially, you know, Peter was talking figuratively when he said, a day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Uh, I, I don't believe the day age theory, you know, uh, as Mike said in the book of Genesis, when God created in six days, it was the language in Hebrew gives us the idea that it is six literal days. And then the seventh day that God rested. 
Uh, he rested not because he was tired. He rested because he was finished. The Bible makes it clear he completed his work. Um, but some Bible teachers do see uh, a whole pattern there in the six and one uh, for all of man's time on earth. Now, I will say this, and I will I will say, first of all, this is not scripture, okay? This isn't Bible, so you don't hang your hat on it. Uh, but there is an extra biblical uh, a book that was supposedly written by Barnabas and, uh, you know, supposed to be written by the one who was the, the friend of the apostle Paul. And uh, it's interesting because in the book of Barnabas, he brings this up and actually says that in 6,000 years, uh, man's time will be complete. And talking about then how after 6,000 years is over, then what you're moving into after that is the time of the millennial reign, which would be the, you know, the seventh day or the 7,000th year. Uh, it's a neat pattern. And again, the book of Barnabas is not inspired scripture. Don't hang your hat on it. But I do think it's interesting that, you know, whenever that book was written by whoever it was written by, whether it was Barnabas or not, that the observations were being made at that time uh, of this same thing. Uh, but it's, you know, it's always important for us, I think, when we're looking at things like this, it's neat to see these different patterns in scriptures and to, and to kind of think about these things. Uh, but you know what? Jesus, uh, it, it, the one thing he told us, especially about the end times, was this, be ready. You know, be ready at all times. And uh, I think that's the important thing, especially when we're looking at the feast days and we're relating them to old, to old, to end times. And then we're relating something like this to the millennium and to, you know, mankind's days being up on earth. I think the main thing we have to remember is to uh, stick with the clear teaching of Scripture. And, uh, you know, there is one thing, Mike, I'd love to point out, which is really awesome, is, you know, God created uh, created everything in six days. And then he, if you read, you know, the Genesis count in chapters, uh, one and two, what you'll see, he created man on the second half of the sixth day. On the first half of the sixth day, he created the animals. Second half of the sixth day, he created mankind. Well, what's interesting is after he created mankind, he said now his creation was very good. Before that, he just said it was good. Then he said it was very good. Why? Because mankind is the cream of the crop. It's the cherry on top of his creation. Uh, he made us in his image. But what I love is this. What came after the second half of the sixth day was the seventh day. So that means that Adam's first day, Adam and Eve's first day on the earth was a day of rest. That is beautiful because that is what God had intended for man. Even though he gave him a job to do in the garden, he meant for our life to be one of rest and faith in him because he's the one who created us and provides everything for us. And that's why I believe when you go to the New Testament, it's the writer of Hebrews has so much to say about Jesus being our Sabbath, him being our rest, uh, as well as Jesus himself said that. So I just love that correlation there, Mike. Amen. I hope that answers it for you. Yeah, it does. I, uh, yeah, I believe that the creation was in a literal sixth day. Mm-hmm. And what it says. I just, because of yeah. the six uh, days and the six thousand years i just wonder if there you know the correlation there and i think you guys did a good job explaining that i appreciate it well bob god bless you i'm glad you're uh reading your bible that's a good thing stay in line send you out the movie jesus uh based on the book of luke something i think you'll enjoy great to share with your friends okay thank you so much god bless you bob have a blessed day let's go to brent fort worth texas hi welcome hey good afternoon uh so my question is uh 
actually around predestination, not really a question, but I was looking for some bolstering. I know y'all have answered this question before, um, but it's come up a couple times with amongst myself and other believers in the last two days. And um, it's like they're hanging on this, this one scripture or a couple of scriptures, one in particular, Romans 8, uh, 29 and 30. Um, it's like they're cherry picking it. And there, and then that's, you know, period hard stop. I'm like, no, that's not how this, that's not exactly how it works. Yes. God is, uh, has predestined us, but it only in his knowledge, not in our knowledge. So we don't know who is saved and who is not. Absolutely. I, that, I mean, I mean, then John three sixteen needs to immediately in all Calvinistic books, and pastors need to immediately remove that. Oh, but wait, <laughs> they've already done that. They come along and they say, well, uh, uh, Jesus never really said that. That's a mistake in the Bible. For God so loved the world, the world, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, Jesus never really said that. Um, you know, false doctrine always requires you to start surgically hacking the Bible into pieces. God knows all things. He ultimately knows who chooses him and who doesn't. But just because God has foreknowledge of all of our decisions doesn't stop any of us from having the freedom to make the decisions we make. Now, if you read the rest of the Bible, now that's a novel concept, isn't it? You cults out there? Hey, if you read the rest of the Bible, you'll realize that a lot of your dogma, your church uh, uh, doctrines, fall apart. Baptism for the dead. Well, it's in the Bible. No, it's really not. Paul writes and says, if you don't believe in life after death, if you don't believe in in the resurrection, why are you then baptizing for the dead? He never says you should be. He says, why are you doing it? But again, this falls Brent in the same MO, the motive operandi, that all the other ones work. They eliminate the verses that counterdict that. Again, how else could you describe God's foreknowledge of knowing who makes it and who doesn't? God does not learn. He lives in all times present. So he knows more about uh, tomorrow than we remember about yesterday. But here's what we have to remember. That's the way God explains it. Paul, the others explain it of God's foreknowledge. Predestined. We're predestined in that he knows who made it and who doesn't. But that doesn't stop any of us from making that choice. For God so loved the world. It does not say, for God so loved the predestinated ones. And only the predestinated ones who believe in him will not perish. But it says, anyone, all, God so loved the world that whosoever, that means anyone, that will believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The Great Commission, the Bible says, Jesus said, go preach the gospel to only the predestinated ones because the rest of them are lost. It doesn't say that. Go preach the gospel to every creature. You see, this is the problem that you always find where they go through, they dissect, they chop up the Bible to suit their own belief. I have no problem when you read the entirety of Scripture. But when we have verses like John 3.16, like the Great Commission, where we find that who can, 
whosoever will may come. Revelation 22, the bride and whosoever thirst may come. It doesn't say only the predestinated ones. And this is the danger. Well, what's the advantage then of predestination theology? Well, first of all, I don't need to evangelize. Because really, if they're predestined to get saved, they're going to figure it out. I don't have anything to do with it. This is a thing that God's doing. Number two, altar calls. You know, those things at the end of a service that oftentimes make people feel uncomfortable when they're really challenged. Do you want to turn your life over to Christ? Well, we don't even have those in church anymore because if you're predestined, you're going to figure it out, baby. You don't even have to have altar calls. You don't have to have evangelism. You don't have to do anything. Is that what the Bible teaches? Now, again, when we look at doctrine like this, and you realize how cruel it is that God, as they say, (laughs) they do, God deliberately put people on on this earth to send them to hell and to fry them. (laughs) The new ogre God. How wicked. And that's the, the nicest thing I can say about it. Jesus died for everyone. Again, just because God knows who will ultimately choose him and who doesn't, that predestination idea, doesn't mean every person doesn't have an opportunity. And furthermore, the Bible says God has given to every man a measure of faith. What have we done with that faith? Have Have we decided to go and find out more about God? I mean, all of a sudden you walk out and you look at the creation of God on a starry night. You look at how a tree drops its leaves in the winter. You look how a baby is. You look at all the things that God made. And to say, oh, <laughs> a pure accident, man, lightning at a swamp. And man, here it all is. Whoa. You know, that takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe in a loving God. And so when I hear this, And I realize how evil it really is that God just selects a few and to hell with the rest. My friends, that is not the doctrine of the gospel. It is not the doctrine of a loving God. And it counterdicts scripture to the max. Again, for God so loved the world. Whosoever would believe in him, that's anyone. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that here it is, the world through him might be saved. It does not say the predestinated ones in John 3.17. So now we have a real problem. We have false doctrine being passed off as truth because we have a bunch of lazy Christians that don't want to evangelize, ministers that don't want to make... A group of people feel uncomfortable by giving that altar call at the end of a sermon. Because after all, if you're predestined to go to heaven, (laughs) well, you'll figure it out. Your thoughts. That's right, Mike. And you know, it is, I think, a terrible mistake to divorce God's foreknowledge from his predestination. It's, it's, It's a travesty, I think, to Scripture to try to divorce God's foreknowledge 
from his election of believers, his choosing of believers, and as we're talking about here, predestination. Um, I do know that Calvinists look at that word as foreknowledge, as speaking of God's love, him loving us, uh, even when he knows everything about us, uh, which is true. But that's not the only thing foreknowledge means. Foreknowledge, as Mike said, means that God knows everything ahead of time. And so, you know, we, I, I, again, I don't think you can separate that. And I don't think the Bible does. First Peter chapter one, verse two, Peter speaking to believers said that they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And then there's another wonderful scripture, Romans chapter eight in verse 29. It says, whom he foreknew, those that he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And their predestination is not speaking of just salvation. And I think a lot of times when we read predestination in the Bible or we discuss predestination concerning, you know, salvation and biblical things, we only apply it to salvation. Uh, in verse 29 of Romans 8, Paul's applying it to the Christian life that what God has predestined us to is not just salvation, but a life that is conformed to the image of Jesus, to a sanctified life. And in fact, uh, Peter brings it up in First Peter 1, 2, talking about how we were sanctified by the Spirit. And so I think it's important to understand that. And I think when we do understand that, we get a good balance then of all the Scripture. You know, you can you can go one of two ways on this issue uh, when it comes to free will and it comes to God's sovereignty and predestination. You can go too far one way and too far the other way. But Mike, you know, the thing I've noticed over the years and, you know, since I've been a Christian and reading and studying the Bible is when I take all of the Bible in consideration, I really end up in the middle. <laughs> I don't, I don't end up as a Calvinist believing that, you know, um, that God is sovereign. And because of that, he sends some, to, he, he determined, predetermines some to go to heaven, some to go to hell. Don't believe that at all. And then also, uh, I don't believe that it's all up to man and his goodness to choose God. No, uh, Jesus made it very clear that the Holy, that he sends the Holy Spirit into the world to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment and to draw us to the Father. And so the truth, uh, I, I found this to be true that when it comes to all doctrines that churches argue over, the truth is always somewhere in the middle whenever you read the whole Bible. <laughs> so I think that's a help. Mike? Amen. I hope that answers it for you. Absolutely. Amen. And I appreciate it. And that, that definitely bolsters, you know, my, my, uh, my thought on it, on it. And I appreciate it. Well, Brent, you know, and, and, and by the way, I, I want to tell everybody, I, I don't mean to get a little tongue in cheeky there when I, when I describe this with people, but if I don't bring some humor into it concerning me personally, I get so angry at false doctrine and this doctrine that God deliberately puts people on earth to send them to hell. Uh, to me, this is not a loving God. This is not the God of the Bible. And and right. as a Christian, I could not represent God doing what I do as a minister, as a friend, as a pastor, uh, representing a God that deliberately sends people to hell. Well, you know, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. <laughs> it stinks to be you. I mean, what kind of gospel is that? I'm sure it's a gospel the devil likes to promote. Because, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a sinner, <laughs> well, <laughs> enjoy hell. 
But that isn't what the Bible teaches. Whosoever will may come, the scripture tells us. And I think that is so important because, again, I believe this. Now, people will say, well, again, uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's a good illustration. There, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay, let's go back and look and see what the scripture says about Pharaoh and God. What did God do to Pharaoh to harden his heart? Hmm, I think that's a fair question. He showed him miracles. As a matter of fact, 10 in all. Number one, that God is God. And number two, Pharaoh, you're not God. The more miracles that God did at the hand of Aaron and Moses, the harder Pharaoh's heart got. Where else do we find this in the Bible? Well, the Pharisees. The more miracles that Jesus did, the harder the Pharisees' hearts got. Now, for some, those miracles softened people's hearts, and they believed because of the miracles. Others saw the miracles. They knew he was the real deal, and because they knew that and they were phony, their hearts got harder. So when the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it isn't that he hardened it like, oh, I'm, I'm going to pour a, a catalyzed resin on your heart so it hardens. No, God showed him his power, and it was Pharaoh's reaction to God's power that hardened his heart. God provided the means, yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart in that he provided the miracles, but it was Pharaoh's reaction was the ultimate outcome. So we have to understand when we look at Scripture, again, God's a good God. Whosoever will may come. The Spirit and the bride say, come, only for the predestinated ones. No, it doesn't say that. And see, the more you really look at the entirety of God's word, without going to the Bible with a preconceived idea, you, you really then, I believe, exegete out of the scripture what God is saying. How can you say God is a God of love when he deliberately puts people on earth to send them to hell? No, that's their decision. That's their choice. And again, just because you have a a videotape or a a CD of the last Super Bowl game and you watch the guy drop the ball in the end zone in the last few minutes of the game and lose the game, that doesn't mean that that person didn't drop that ball. You just have to have the knowledge of it on 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 a DVD. Well, it's the same way God is. God has the DVD, the movie, the, the reels on every one of our lives. We can't blame God for the decisions we make. And see, this is why I think it's so important that we understand that, again, for God so loved the world. Friends, I believe that is the most important thing that any of us as believers can remember, and it is the one thing that puts this whole Calvinistic thing away. uh, Because, again, God has called all people everywhere, the Bible says, to repent. Hope that helps. And again, keep preaching God's word. You pastors, keep giving altar calls because I do believe days are short. Work for the night's coming when no one can work. We're out of time. Stay in line, Brent. For everybody, call back. We'll put you on first thing tomorrow. Thanks, Scott, for being on. God bless you all. Have a good night. To find out more about this ministry or to receive a copy of today's program, please call 1-800-357-4226. 
or write us to Every Man and Answer, P.O. Box 391, Twin Falls, Idaho 83303. That toll free number is 1 800 357 4226. Subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes by searching for To Every Man and Answer in the iTunes store or visit us online at csnradio.com slash TEMA. To Every Man and Answer is a production of CSN International, the Christian Satellite Network. The opinions expressed by our guests may or may not be those of CSN International or of this station. 